Mark 11. Jesus curses the fig tree. The next morning, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. He noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off. So he went on over to see if he could find any figs. But there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. Then Jesus said to the tree, May no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. Jesus clears the temple. When they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people, buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, The scriptures declare, My temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. When the leading priests and teachers of religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him. But they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. That evening, Jesus and the disciples left the city. The next morning, as they passed by the fig tree he had cursed, the disciples noticed it had withered from the roots up. Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree on the previous day and exclaimed, Look, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed has withered and died. Then Jesus said to the disciples, Have faith in God. I tell you the truth. You can say this to the mountain. May you be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. But you must really believe it will happen and have no doubt in your heart. I tell you, you can pray for anything. And if you believe that you've received it, it will be yours. But when you are praying, first forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. week in your life look like? Well, my son drops in for an hour or two during the week. I go grocery shopping and occasional doctor's visit. And my girlfriends and I get together on Friday afternoons for coffee. <laughs> Other than that, I read a lot and I spend time with Jesus. I used to spend so much time with my girlfriends before my <gasps> job. Give me your money right now. Did you hear me? Both of you give it to me now. Okay, okay, we will. Just please put the knife down. Do it and do it now. No. Now you put that knife down right now in the name of Jesus. And you believe he was early 20s? Yeah, maybe 25. So let me get this straight. He was pointing a knife at you and you told him to put it down in Jesus' name. Right. Now, when you write that down, don't leave out Jesus. People always leaving Jesus out. That's one of the reasons we're in the mess we're in. Yes, ma'am. You know, what concerns me is that you could have easily been killed. Well, I know a lot of people probably would have given them that money. I understand that. But that's their decision. Are you not eating your ice cream, Elizabeth? No, I'm not hungry anymore. Well, let me help you with that. 
No reason to waste perfectly good ice cream. Mmm. Oh, that's good. Mmm. -hmm. That is mountain moving faith. You know, it was interesting as I was watching this clip over and over and over again. I had picked up on two lines that happened before the robber comes to them. And the first one was Miss Clara starting with, I just do this and this, but most of my time is spent with Jesus. To which Elizabeth says, well, I used to spend a lot of time with my friends before I got my job. And then you fast forward to the end of that clip, and who's the one that has the peace? Who's the one that's, oh, yeah, I'm going to have more ice cream? The one who spent all her time with Jesus. Now, let me start with a disclaimer, because I didn't show this clip to advise you or suggest to you to handle a robbery in this manner, okay? So let's get that out. I am not saying next time someone tries to rob you, Stand up in the name of Jesus and tell them to put a weapon down. That's not my point in showing you this clip. I show it because I want us to think. When we use in the name of Jesus, what are we claiming? What are we believing? What are we expecting? You know, it's not a bad thing to say, in the name of Jesus. In fact, Scripture tells us Jesus himself tells us to pray in his name. And yet, still, nowhere in Scripture does a prayer end in Jesus' name. Hmm. Has the phrase become more of a superstitious recitation for us in the hopes that we'll get what we pray for? Or do we use it with an understanding of what it means to truly pray in the name of Jesus? Do we grasp the privilege and the honor of praying in his name in true mountain-moving prayer? Or do we take it for granted? You see, our text this evening has often been taken out of context, and it's used to rationalize this idea that whatever we want, we can have it if we have enough faith. The flip side of that would be that if you aren't receiving what you're asking for in prayer, then you don't have enough faith. And that is unscriptural. Along that line of thinking, we could mistakenly believe that we know better than God what we need, what's good for us. We can mistakenly believe that God works to serve us in a kind of heavenly Santa way. Which are both unscriptural and dangerous to believe. To grasp what Jesus is talking about here, we have to take this verse in its context. Look what's before it and look what comes after it. Jesus curses the fig tree. The next morning, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. He noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off. So he went over to see if he could find any figs. 
but they were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. Then Jesus said to the tree, May no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him. You see, this story sounds a little out of character for Jesus. So he must be using this as an acted out parable for us. Verse 13 tells us the fig tree was in full leaf. You know, in my study this week, I discovered that fig trees only produce leaves after they produced fruit. So there was this understanding that if this fig tree was full of leaves, it would have also been full of fruit. But that isn't the case. See, when Jesus gets to the tree, he discovers there's no fruit at all. The barrenness of the fig tree, despite its outward appearance to be otherwise, becomes the center of this narrative. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? In Jeremiah 8, Jeremiah uses the example of a barren tree to symbolize the failure of the people to follow God. Jeremiah also used the concept of producing fruit in chapter 17 as a symbol for trusting in God. Jeremiah 17, verses 7 and 8 says, But blessed are those who trust in the Lord and have made the Lord their hope in confidence. They are like trees planted along a riverbank with roots that reach deep into the water. Such trees are not bothered by the heat or worried by long months of drought. Their leaves stay green and they never stop producing fruit. Jesus came proclaiming a different kind of kingdom. A different kind of Messiah than what the people were expecting. He was pointing out the failure of the religious system to produce religious people. You see, while the Jewish religious system looked good on the outside, and by all appearances it looked healthy because leaves, it produced no fruit. Jesus acted out this parable as a condemnation of profession without practice. The tree with its leaves, it professed to offer something that it didn't have. The message of the New Testament is that a man will be known by the fruits of his life. In Matthew 7, we have, Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep, but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit. And a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, but a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees that are not producing fruit. 
In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Jesus is condemning the hypocrisy that's taking place in the religious system. The idea that we can substitute our words of faith for actual lived-out faith. The point is further carried over into the story of Jesus in the temple. As Jesus entered the temple, he began to drive out the people that were buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have turned it into a den of thieves. That line, verse 16, he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. Isn't that the very definition of why Jesus came? To cast away the religious system and bring in a new covenant for us. That was a key statement there that he said. You see, the temple area was filled with profiteers that were working in cooperation with the priests. They were robbing the pilgrims that came to Jerusalem to worship. They were forcing them to purchase approved sacrificial animals at currencies at inflated prices. It's kind of like price gouging before a hurricane. You know, we all need gas, we all need water, and suddenly at a hurricane coming, the stores inflate the prices. It's against the law, but that's what this was, and that's what these people in the temple were doing. They were inflating, they were robbing people. In the temple, every Jewish male had to pay a yearly temple tax. It was an amount equaling about two days' pay. And it had to be paid in the currency of the temple. The money exchangers made the exchange into temple money, but charged them twice as much. They did this in what was called the outer courts of the temple, and that was the only area that the Gentiles could worship and pray. So when the sellers made this place of prayer into a marketplace, and a dishonest one at that, they were keeping others from God. God intended the temple to be a house of prayer for all nations. That meant all people everywhere. But they had made it into a den of thieves. A den of thieves. What is a den of thieves? A den is a place where thieves go to associate. It's where the thieves go to hide. That's where they would go to feel safe. 
They were using the temple of God as a place to feel safe in their sin. Wow. That's a sorry, shameful condition of the house of God to be used that way. I dare say that some churches are behaving the same way today. Churches today are used as a place of worship. But then we go out and we do what we want. There's no sign of the Spirit in us when we're out there. We just put on the good show in the building. Just like these thieves in the temple. They were robbing God of his glory. Do we do that? Do we rob God of his glory? Because we go out there and act differently than we do in here. The temple was being used as a place of forgiveness. It was a place of fellowship with God. But no matter how they behaved on the outside, it didn't matter because they could come back in and feel good about themselves. They believed that the religious system and speaking of words of faith were enough to save them. There was no purity of heart. There was no purity of faith. There were only empty words and hypocritical actions. The corrupted temple that should have been a house of prayer had corrupted its purpose and it now needed to be cleansed. Both the fig tree and the temple cleansing point to a shift in God's work in the world through Jesus himself. That brings us to the infamous passage. Jesus said to the disciples, Have faith in God. I tell you the truth you can say to this mountain, May you be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. The use of a mountain and moving of it was a common way of talking about doing impossible things. Job 9.5 says, Without warning, he moves the mountains, overturning them in his anger. That's something only God can do. But moving mountains does not necessarily refer to what we might identify as miraculous today. It doesn't mean some supernatural feat. It simply refers to something that from a human perspective is impossible for us. Matthew recounts the same story in chapter 21. And he finishes it with, you can pray for anything. If you have faith, you will receive it. See, when Jesus refers to faith here, he's not talking about some magical superpower that we get. That humans can just exercise on their own. That's not what he's talking about. You know, I have a funny story to put in here. When I was at the hairdresser yesterday, and I was getting my hair done, and Some of the hairdressers hadn't seen 
the look here before. And so they were helping my usual hairdresser. And so the first one, she was washing my hair, and she said, wow, she said, this looks so cool. She said, you look like a superhero. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay, great, thank you. And then I, you know, they finished doing that, and I got, I was put in the chair, and then they were doing the gel and the hairspray and, and all kinds of stuff. And when that woman finished, she kept touching my hair and touching my hair and primping and everything. She kept looking in the mirror. She goes, wow, you really do look like a superhero. And I thought, how cool would it be to be a cape crusader for Jesus? I could fly around and I could zap people with faith. How cool would that be? Because I'll tell you, I had an experience this week where I talked with a gentleman who's been dealing with some health issues. And he's basically given up. He actually told me, he said, I'm praying for the Lord to take me in my sleep at night. And I said, how can you say that? You're a believer. Do you not know the faith that God has put in you? He says, yeah, but I, I, can't, I can't do it. I don't have it. But my heart's desire was, oh, if I could just give him the faith to see. And I couldn't. I couldn't give it to him. I said to him, I said, stop feeling sorry for yourself. You need to grab a hold of that faith. I can't give it to you. You need to choose it for yourself. It's not some magical power that we have. It's what God gives us. But we have to accept it. Faith is linked with the phrase in prayer. Prayer is not the activating key for faith. But faith must be submitted to God in our prayers. Kind of like the father whose demon-possessed son, he brought him and said, Lord, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. The Lord wants to give you faith. But you have to ask, and you have to accept it. It is God and his will that govern which mountains will be moved and how those mountains are moved. We have to look at one key word in this text. In verse 23, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. You can say to this mountain, this mountain. Jesus doesn't say a mountain. He's not talking about any mountain or any challenge in our lives. He's speaking about a specific mountain. This mountain, he says. So what is this mountain? The mountain that they had been standing on was the Temple Mount. We've already discussed how the mission of the people of God, they had reduced the mission of God to a physical earthly kingdom with a king that would bring national security to Israel. 
And as a result, religious practices and temple worship had come to serve selfish interests rather than serving God. In both the cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple, Jesus had challenged those expectations. He had challenged the empty religious practices that went with them. And he had pronounced judgment on their failure to be God's people in meaningful ways. You see, the entire Jewish system of worship is about to be dismantled by Jesus. It was about to be destroyed. He was calling them, repent, follow me. Jesus came proclaiming a new kingdom, not one defined by rituals and superficial obedience, but a kingdom that lives in the hearts of people, that produces genuine care for others, genuine service to God. And that was going to characterize God's people, not fruitless trees. Not two-faced religion. When Jesus told the disciples that they should have faith and not doubt, and that they would have power through that faith, what he was doing was referring to the power as being necessary for fulfilling their role as God's people in the world. This power that came from faith was about them serving others in the kingdom. This power would enable them to love. It would enable them to serve in humility. It would enable them to bring selfless service to others. Those are the mountains we're moving. Not, I need this, I need that, I need that. Those aren't mountains. Those are not the mountains that God's moving. The bringing of a soul from death to life is the result of the love of a mountain moving God. The transformation of hearts from stone to flesh is the result of the mercy and grace of a mountain moving God. The power of God in which they would draw by faith is not to fulfill whatever they think they need or whatever they wanted. It was to perform Service for the Lord. It was not to just do miracles at whatever command came to them. It was power to move mountains, but in service to others. That's what it's about. If it was just to do miracles, Jesus would have said it. But actually, Jesus rebuked that. In all of scripture, he was constantly asked to do signs and wonders. And what did he say? No, no, you don't understand this power. That's what this is about. Jesus is teaching them and teaching us that spirituality is a matter of the heart. It's not a checklist of religious to-dos. And it's not to have a show to see who can look more spiritual on the outside. The lesson is that a relationship with God is more important than a religious system. The purpose of our prayers 
is not to get things from God. It is to get God himself. Prayer is about relationship. But too often, we treat prayer like we're on an episode of that old game show, Let's Make a Deal. Lord, if you do this for me, yeah, okay, what's, I'll take behind door number five, Lord. And God is saying, can you just sit with me? Just sit with me. Spend time with me. Don't look to me for what I can give you. I want to give you myself. Jesus is telling the disciples, that's not how any of this works. Jesus has come. He has upended the whole religious system. And he continues to move mountains in the human heart every time someone comes to faith and accepts him as Lord and Savior. The moving of mountains is the miracle of faith which all followers of Christ are infused with. That does wondrous things in the spiritual life of a believer. This is a faith that justifies us and makes us right with God. Since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. That faith removes the mountains of guilt, never to rise up in judgment against us again. This is a faith that purifies our hearts. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. He removes the mountains of corruption and greed and makes them plains for the grace of God. It is by faith that the world is conquered. Satan's fiery darts are quenched. A soul is crucified with Christ and yet lives. By faith, we set the Lord always before us. We see him that is invisible. We have him present in our minds, and that is what moves mountains. Jesus' point is that the new kingdom of God has come in him. And in those who have faith in him and his kingdom. Those who are able to move mountains in fulfilling their calling as the people of God. According to his teaching. Able to produce the fruits of his kingdom. Unlike the example of the fig tree, which only gave the image of fruitfulness. It is these fruits of the kingdom, the loving in ways that matter, that are the product of mountain-moving faith. It's not about what we want. It's about what he wants to do. The implication is that none of these things can be accomplished by our human effort. They are mountains that cannot be moved. We are not selfless in our nature. That's a mountain. God moves that mountain to make us selfless. 
not selfish. He takes the selfish out of us. By seeking the presence of God in prayer, by placing faith in God's revelation of himself in Jesus, God's people who inhabit the new kingdom can move mountains. They can do the impossible of being God's people and producing the fruit of the kingdom. This text is not justification for us today to command physical things. That thinking risks the same kind of self-centered fruitlessness that was facing the people in Jesus' time. As we saw with the fig tree, as we saw with the temple, we can be led to thinking that as long as we look good on the outside, check off all the right religious boxes, then our behavior outside doesn't really matter. We can be so clouded by our own religious system maybe blinded by our own hypocrisy so much so that we are blinded to the very mountain that God has moved for us to come to him. And so we ask the question again, when we use in the name of Jesus, what are we claiming? What are we believing? What are we expecting? Because when we pray in the name of Jesus, we're testifying to who Jesus is. We are testifying to his character, to his nature, and to his power. When we pray in the name of Jesus, we are acting as a witness to his character, to his authority, according to his command, in alignment with his desires. John wrote in 1 John, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. The key part of that verse, to those who believe in the name of Jesus, to begin to grasp the concept of mountain-moving prayer. We must first recognize the mountains God moved to give us the opportunity to be called sons of God, daughters of God. We must recognize the mountain-moving that he has done in our own hearts, giving us the faith to believe. We must recognize the mountains that are moved in our lives every day that enable us to cast off the religious practice for the sake of practice and instead produce fruit for his kingdom and his purposes and his glory. And when we find ourselves in that place spiritually, that is where we see our God-given faith move mountains. You want to move mountains. You've got to see the mountains that God has moved to draw you to him. And then 
Lord, help me. Lord, help me. I want to serve you more. I want to know you more. And he continues to knock down the mountains of selfishness. Of, oh, I want my time to me. Those are the mountains that God wants to move in your life. Because that will bring a new perspective to your entire life. So every challenge that you face, you now see through a God lens because you understand the mountains that God really wants to move in your life. It's about becoming more like Jesus, not getting what we want. We're going to close this message out in, in prayer again. As the song plays, if you want someone to pray with you, please come up to this side of the church. If you prefer to sit in the pew by yourself, that's okay too. Ask God what mountains you still need moved in your heart. He's a mountain-moving God. He wants to do it.